you're learning by failing. You're learning the trial and error. You're, you're finding your voice. And I think the problem with the first six books is I didn't have my voice. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What up, everyone? It's your boy, Hot Chocolate, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I got the chance to have a conversation with Pierce Brown. This guy is the author of Red Rising, and if you have not read this book, go out and get it right now. And the conversation was, how the hell do you make a super, super popular fantasy fiction book? And what you don't want to hear is that it took him six years of no success. What you don't want to hear is that he wrote a ton of books that no one ever read. What you don't want to hear is that like, it takes a lot, a lot of hard work, but there were some really, really interesting gems. How was he actually able to finally write the book that became a bestseller in only a month and a half? We talk about that. We talk about imposter syndrome and King syndrome, which I've actually never heard about. Uh, we discuss how much coffee this guy actually drinks in a day and a bunch more. I really enjoyed this episode. Enjoy. So a lot of caffeine. Uh, and then so not, not as many caffeine these days, though, just like three to five uh, espressos a day, something like that. You know, it all depends what I'm doing. If I'm in the house writing or working, it always is more. You know how it is. Sometimes you have to like nurse yourself into uh, discipline. What do you mean by that? I mean, in terms of working, you're basically, I mean, half the reason we drink coffee, probably even more than that, is the atmospheric effect it has on us because it like, you know, it's basically tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of dopamine release, right? So it titillates the reward center. But then we associate that with a positive experience, like, you know, reading the paper, a quiet time in the morning or, you know, working or whatever. So for a creative, I think often, um, this is why I probably see so many creators with drug problems is they associate that high with creation or with, you know, they, they remember that one time they did like five shots of espresso and typed 10 pages. And so all of a sudden you start chasing that red, white rabbit. So you drink more espresso because then you think you'll get smarter. Like the answer to your uh, writer's block at the bottom of the cup. No, I've actually never thought of it like that. Like you kind of have a good experience. You're like, man, when I eat this like piece of pizza, like I had a really great paragraph or something like that. And then I'm just going to eat pizza every day. Yeah. Well, you know, look look at how I think that pizza has some guilt attached to it that a coffee doesn't have, for instance. But, you know, you look how they train mice. Um, it's the same way. They treat they teach them to activate like, you know, food dispensers by touching things in the pattern in a certain pattern. And so then the mouse encodes that touching that pattern in that specific way in order to get the food. So I mean, it's just like biology, I think. Dude, that's wild. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. So like, Start rewarding yourself when you start doing things you don't want to do, like doing your taxes, and then like have a big old pizza, and you're like, well, fuck, taxes are fun. <laughs> I've been trying to figure out how to make showers fun. I fucking hate showers. It's like one of the least favorite Oh, things. yeah? Yeah, I get that, man. One thing I've been trying to do is listen to like podcasts or music in the shower, and that's, it's, it's helped. Man, you must be a stinky dude at first until you figured that one out. Showers for me are always like a transition period or a way to procrastinate, so I don't like them either, like and to be honest, I'm in there like in there for like a minute and a half before I get bored. But the they're like a transition between writing on projects or you know like oh I'm working, but then I'll work and then I'll take a shower and then I'll watch a movie or something. And it's a transition. It's a way to cleanse yourself, I guess. Do you procrastinate a lot? Because especially being like a writer and creative, I was wondering. It's like, do you just like go hours or days? You're like, I'm just not going to do anything. I think that uh, I think that all writers are professional procrastinators, and then that wars against the inherent hubris they have, thinking that they have something to say. So it's like you're super hard on yourself, but you're also really good at procrastinating. My discipline is a lot. My discipline is actually pretty good with the writing stuff because I actually enjoy it. 
But like, you know, if I have to get my tires changed in my car, shit, that's going to take a month. Is it hard for you to have that discipline? What you said online was like, you have that discipline where you're like four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon, like, you know, standard nine to five, but you're doing it just for your writing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's easier because especially when you have these like things where you have to create benchmarks along the way because otherwise, you know, how are you going to complete a 600-page book? Because, you know, if you're trying, it's like impossible to visualize the finished end. So you have to kind of just create those four-hour chunks, those flagpoles. Like if I get four hours done, then I'll be putting in, you know, a piece of the puzzle. And so it's easier to quantify it like that. That's interesting. When I first started writing, when I wrote Red Rising. I did that one in like a month and a half um, in just like a furious spate. And that one, I was in, not even disciplined. I was just manic. I was doing it like 10 hours a day. How were you able to write that so quickly? <laughs> I don't know, man. I think it's like I was fresh out of a breakup. So, you know how you... Uh, were you fresh out of a breakup? Turn. Yeah, fresh out of a breakup. I was kind of... I'd just gotten done with my stint on a political campaign. So I was like kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I was pretty unhappy because I was living, I was working at a, a job I didn't particularly love at a startup tech company. And it just felt like everything else, everyone else was defining the way I felt in the, my life. And so then that was just my, you know, rebellion against it, I suppose. And that's why I was so fevered. But really, it straight up was just, you know, uh, manic amounts of writing, trying to get the story out. But it was, you know, the Iron Gold, which I'm writing now, was a much more measured approach and took a lot longer. I mean, Iron Gold took about eight months to get the first draft out. And I think each book has its own DNA. You know, sometimes, like Red Rising, if you read it, is a very, it's much faster read. It's like a single shot adrenaline ride you can read in like six hours. And I think that's also because of the way I wrote it. But where Iron Gold is, you know, if you more POVs, it's more complicated. Did you have the whole story just like in your head? And you're like, holy fuck, I just, I see the whole picture. For Red Rising, yeah. Wow, really? Red Rising, it was, I had it in chunks, you know. Um, when I had everything up to the Institute. And then I for like puzzled over like a week of what the Institute was. And, cause, and then I started drawing inspiration from my, some of my favorite things as a kid, like Lord of the Flies, Enter's Game. And I created the Institute. But up, up until that point, I, I knew the story I wanted to tell. The, the first act, I suppose. And then the rest of it all started making sense because I knew I wanted to uh, do, I know I wanted to have a golden sun and morning star to a degree, not very detailed degree, but to a degree. And the problem was finding that bridge, you know, what's the second two thirds of red rising going to be about. Do you feel like, Oh shit, well, I've got to write the next two in in a month and a half each. Sure. Sure. Yeah. the, The funny thing is, I mean, I wrote red rising in 2011. It didn't get bought by random house until almost a year later. And then when he got bought by, bought by Random House, they pushed publication because of uh, they wanted me to work on the second one and they wanted the books to come out, you know, one a year. So they pushed it back to 2014. The book came out three years after I wrote it, which is a weird thing because I was about to quit writing because uh, I'd been rejected by like 120 agents. I'd written six books before Red Rising, none of which had been particularly good, nor landed me an agent. And then Red Rising, because kind of my last two raw and then so i sat on that for about a year because agents weren't interested and then all of a sudden a couple were at once and then sold it quickly soon after that so then i had tons of time to write golden sun so i wrote golden sun before i knew red rising would be a hit and then morning star i wrote between the time i uh, red rising and uh, golden sun came out so i knew that i was uh, writing something that people would actually read, which was kind of a daunting experience considering I was writing Red Rising above my parents' garage thinking only my mom would read it. Did your mom read it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mom read it, man. My mom read all my stuff. Although my first one, which is this ridiculous 800-page fantasy epic, 
uh, with flying Pegasuses, uh, Pegasi, I guess, and Griffins and stuff, and guys who throw lances at each other. Uh, my mom, I, like, I suspected that she read it too fast, so I said, um, hmm, how was Avari? Was that your favorite character? She's like, I love him. He's such a unique character. I'm like, that's not even a character, mom. And so but the first one uh, might have might have pressed her patience too much. It's 800 pages, but she's read all the the Red Rising books. How did you deal with the year where no one, like, with all the struggle and the rejection? And you had all these, you know, because what happens, like, as fans or readers, we don't see the six books that never came out. We only see, oh, this is a great book. This guy wrote a book, One Hit Wonder. This is amazing. Imagine like a, uh, a graduate course, you just keep, keep getting F's on, you know, <laughs> the, only, the, only, the only, the thing is like, you, you get no reward for it. You sink thousands of hours into these books and then you really grow up during that time period because you begin realizing that you're learning by failing. You're learning the trial and error. You're, you're finding your voice. And I think the problem with the first six books is I didn't have my voice. Also, my voice was extraneous to the story whereas the red rising voice is it's not necessarily how i write it just fits with that story finding the fit during that time period is something that was good for me but it was like to be honest man i want to like gloss over it's a really emotional thing getting your shit rejected i mean look at any creative who has to go through that period and i think that if my early stuff had been rejected how how it had been accepted to wild acclaim and you know fanfare and roses petals falling from the sky i i don't think i'd be i don't think i'd be set up to uh, duplicate the success like i did with golden sun and then with morning star and i think that it made me more prepared for writing a series as gargantuan as the red rising series is, is in scope with the amount of characters and with the amount of action and the amount of stuff that happens in it looking back on it it's easy to find that lesson but during the time period man you're just sitting there in your room and you're like Googling agents and you're trying to find what forms of submission they accept. You're looking at, you know, how they accept query letters. You're writing your query letters, which is just a one page pitch of your stuff. Um, and then they might send you a thing back saying they want to take a look at this writing sample. Some want five pages, some want 10. Send them a writing sample. You wait another month. They might get back to you. Most won't, or you get a form rejection, and then you'll get uh, fifty. Then they'll ask for like fifty pages, or maybe even the whole book, and then you'll, you know, another lapse of time. And meanwhile, I mean, this I started doing this back when people were still sending out paper packets. So I had this huge office set up of paper packets and vanilla folders and everything I was sending out. And then I did it. Was doing it for so long, I guess, for six years or five years, that um, everything became digitized at the end, which was nice because I could send out thirty query packages without like breaking the bank because it used to cost me you know quite a bunch of money and i wasn't making any money so it's 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 kind of hard just sitting there and seeing your work your baby kind of rejected by a form letter um but i'm sure you've dealt with that you know in, in various things you've done it's yeah. just a little more personal the more hours you pour into it you know how it is it's so interesting man i don't think people ever give you enough credit or recognize that you were writing a book a year in college even and like probably even before yeah. that. And then finally, you know, years and years later, you got a book. Other people are like, well, I'll just write a book and get rich in a, you know, a week. Hey, well, man, hard, hard work isn't sexy. No. Unless it's to a musical, unless it's to a musical <laughs> score and condensed in a Rocky movie. I've been reading a lot of like comedians biographies. One of the things that all of them talk about that, that I'm, you know, internalizing myself is just like, you know, they did it for like five, 10, 15 years before finally stuff happened and that their craft was so honed in at that point. And I think that's kind of a message I'm trying to teach myself and others is just like, yeah, it's going to take some time and you got to keep refining it and refining it. I guess with you, how did you keep going? 
like that just sounds so crazy, man. Like you had six books, you're alone. You like keep getting rejected a bunch of times. Like, how'd you keep going on it? Was it just like, hey, I just really want to be a writer? Did you have this vision of like, I'm going to... No, to be honest, I had, one, I had one friend, man. I had one friend who was, you know, you, you, you're kind of like mental accomplice. And he wasn't a writer, but he loved reading all the same stuff I did. And he's, his family's basically like the Weasley family. They live in a house that their parents built, five, four, four of them out in the woods of Washington. And each one of them is like, basically matches up the Weasleys pretty well. (laughs) Their Christmas cards are are like Christmas trees exploding behind them. His name is Aaron. And I dedicate, I think I thanked him uh, most in the first book because he was the one who kept me writing basically because I wanted to write so we could talk about the stories, you know? And so I keep writing and then I share like 40,000 words with them or 20,000 words and we geek out and then I go write another one. So it really is just finding that kindred spirit. You know, and he read all my drafts until Morning Star before anyone else did. And then the funny thing about Morning Star is then I'm best friends with his two brothers. So they were the ones that read the draft before him. So he's pretty pissed off. Well, why didn't you give it to him? He was busy, man. He's kind of uh, working his dad's business. He's a lawyer, so he's reading all day. And also Joel, his brother, was the one that did the, a lot of the artwork for Red Rising. So Joel uh, and I, do, we do these things where we go like for three weeks or four weeks to a cabin and just both work because he's a tremendously successful and talented artist. And so he's just doing his art, these huge charcoal drawings while I'm writing. And so it's a kind of good way for us to both mentally escape. Um, but I, you know, I can do that now cause I don't have to, uh, <laughs> you know, work three jobs, but, uh, Joel was just there. So I'd like, you know, run things by him. Nathan's the youngest brother. He likes everything I write. So, uh, you know, there's no judgment in giving it to him. And I was a little bit trepidated. I had a little bit of trepidation showing it to Aaron because it wasn't finished yet. That's the primary reason. Okay. Well, Aaron, we were big ups, dude. Thanks for helping him write. That's a, it's interesting, <laughs> man. You got to have that accountability, those people that believe you. And so he kind of kept supporting you through like the years where like no one else is kind of believing in it. You know, I thought I'd get that validation from my parents, but every time I gave something to my parents, and I love them to death and they're wonderful people, but there wasn't the, like, I'd expect some sort of catharsis by giving it to them, but then they'd be like, hmm, it's good. And then they wouldn't have much to say. They have like a minute's worth of comments. And then it's just like deflating because you spent so much time into it. And then it's just like, oh, okay, this doesn't connect with you. And so you got to find that person who's as passionate about it as you are. You have to ask the right people for the right feedback. Because I notice I'll ask some yeah. people, yeah. and I'm like, hey, what'd you think of the episode? They're like, dude, that was the best thing I've ever heard. And uh, one of my other friends, Neville, I'll be like, hey, what'd you think of this, this episode? He's like, that was shit. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, dude, you could have done so much better and you could have changed this and changed that. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. And it's just more of like finding the right people who are going to help you grow in like ways that you didn't you want to. Oh, yeah. That's such a smart thing to say. I mean, it's it's all about knowing what advice to take from home and which advice means more from certain people. And also, don't set up someone who likes, you know, noir fiction to read your <laughs> fantasy novel and you put all your hopes and dreams upon them liking it. The girl who broke up with you, did you have her die in one of the books or did you ever send her the books? <laughs> No, man, no, no. Uh, uh, you're not vengeful, good. I, well, your books are vengeful. No, I'm not vengeful. You know, and it was it was more, uh, you know, one of those times in your life where the breakup was coming, and then one of you had to pull the trigger, and so it's all for the best. All for the best back then. I was like 21. The only people that I put into the book are some of the friends I grew up with. Um, like my buddy Alex Wakeland is the inspiration for Severo, and Severo is this. Uh, I mean, sorry, Alex and I grew up in Iowa together back when I lived there. And, you know, we'd accidentally burn down barns and cause all sorts of mischief. So he's a pretty easy character to write. 
if I mentioned a bowling alley and, and I had asked what what Red Rising is about, like what's your like like hey I mentioned a bar <laughs> a bowling alley line about? I'm it. the worst at pitching this thing, man. It's shorthand. Uh, Red Rising is a story about a young man who lives in a caste based society who is a slave in that society and then has to infiltrate the upper ranks of that society, which is a uh, form almost of like the Roman Empire that's expanded into space. And he has to infiltrate the upper ranks in order to bring down the regime from the inside. And he, But he does this for love instead of for revenge. How did you deal with pressure and then like, you know, imposter syndrome or self-doubt on your subsequent books? So the first one, you have nothing to lose. You've already written all these books. You kind of just put it out there. But then now as you get to like, you know, Golden Sun or Morningstar, it's like, oh shit, now people are expecting. Like, how'd you deal with imposter syndrome and then the self-doubt or and any tips around that? I don't, I don't know if you do and deal with imposter syndrome. I mean, um, I think that's an important part of keeping you humble because imposter syndrome is great because I, personally, I think it's needed for an author because then you seek the advice and validation of the people that got you to where you are currently. Those familiar people are the ones that are going to keep you sane and grounded and also keep you true to the story. I think if you isolate yourself and then, you know, have King syndrome <laughs> instead of imposter syndrome, then then you're going to basically start perverting your work. I mean, look at George Lucas when he had total control of the Star Wars world. He didn't have some of the producers he had on it earlier. He didn't have his wife editing his material anymore. And it changed. And I think that that's always a negative externality of being too confident in you being king and master of your own domain. So I just trust the people that helped me get where I am. I have every one of my team that still was on my team from the first day. And I still call all the same people on the phone. That is awesome, man. Is there anything change as you've written your subsequent books? Dude, it's hard. Like I'm not the best I'm not the best outliner. Like I, I it's hard for me. I disconnect from an outline because I feel like it's so surgical and how do you write a fiction book? Like how do you I don't know, just do a bunch of drugs and go in the woods and write stuff? Like that's why I'm I'm asking a lot of those questions. Straight up, I don't know how you do a podcast. I don't know how <laughs> people write nonfiction essays. I, I don't know how people write nonfiction essays. I'd be like, it doesn't make sense to me. Like every now and then I'll be asked to write a nonfiction essay for some website or a publication. And I'm just like, oh God, because it's, it's, it's harder for me. Uh, for some reason, stories have always made sense. I think it comes down to, you know, I lived in eight states and a lot of them were in the woods and deserts. And it's hard to, you know, import your friends into each state. So you take books with you and you take your stories with you. And then when you're doing that, it becomes how your brain works, you know? So I'd be, my parents didn't really like me having a TV. So they would give me a walkie talkie, shovel, milk, like some, you know, stuff from the army surplus store and send me into the woods with the walkie talkie and call me home for lunch, <laughs> you know? So half the time I was setting traps for my cousins or digging holes or pretending I was, you know, an army ranger. So it wasn't a very big leap to, for my, my brain to, you know, develop that certain way. But I really do think it's that repetition of stories when you're a kid. What was your vision when you were graduating college, man? Was it like, hey, I want to be an author, a fiction author? Because like you had a, you kind of have an interesting amount of jobs. You were like political campaign, startup tech. You know, I know you worked, I think, at NBC or something like that. But like, did you vision writing a... Well, I, I told, you know, one time it kind of is a flight of fancy because I was writing, um, I wrote like a book a year during college. And... I say that because it's like that was always something I was doing, but I never really, I, you know, I guess I had delusions of grandeur thinking I would be a novelist, but I didn't think it would actually happen, I don't think, mostly because I, you know, when a professor, you asked me what I wanted to do for a living, and I told them author, and they would always kind of chuckle. <laughs> and so, and these are guys that really believed in me. These are guys that wanted me to go into politics and do uh, legislative stuff, 
in D.C., and they were trying to get me hooked on that because I was a political science and economics major. I thought the reality of the world would catch me, and I would be going to politics or work at, like in an investment bank. But stints in each of those things quickly showed me that that's not where I would be happy, because basically I'd be, you know, just I'd be I've managed social media for a startup tech company, and it was just an invaluable experience because it taught me what I didn't want to be doing with my life. That's powerful. I mean, what were the three jobs you had when you were making very little money and just writing the book? You know, I started with, uh, when I got out of school, I started with that campaign uh, I told you about, and that was pretty rigorous. And then I bumped over to um, working at the social media, like in, you know, this office park. Oh, then I basically got a job as an NBC page and found out I got it before, like two, two days before it started. So I packed up all my stuff and then drove down to L.A. and then lived in my political science professor's workout room on an air mattress. And it was like making 10 beautiful bucks an hour as an NBC page. So I was giving tours as an NBC page. And I was also seating people on The Tonight Show, which is far less glamorous than it sounds. What's impressive about your story, man, is just like the power of persistence. I mean, I don't know if you recognize it yourself, but you did you know, a long time without the book coming out. You did a long time without anybody recognizing it. What do you think finally happened with the 120th person? Was it just like, they're like, okay, fine. Well, it's funny because you mentioned like the, the persistence. It, at some point, it just feels like um, it happened to someone else. You know, it's kind of like a workout. At the beginning of the workout, it seems like the most insurmountable, horrible thing ever. And then by like, you know, mile seven, when you're done, you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. You know, provided you're not <laughs> comatose on the ground. So, dude, it, it actually ended up being uh, this one agent who I'd submitted, I'd submitted to her about four times, five times. And each time I got a little bit further along in the process. You know, first time form rejection, second time writing sample, third time. Uh, and each one, I just got a rejection afterwards because she said I wasn't there yet. And then another time, a full story, and she said it wasn't there yet. And then I set Red Rising, and she said it wasn't there yet still. So she said that um, she thought it would require too much editing, you know. Then I uh, kind of gave up on that. And then two months later, I got an email from her saying that her assistant, Hannah Bowman, who's my agent now, was going to start building her list and start representing clients and said that she wanted me to be her first client. So I talked with Hannah and, you know, at this point I'd had a couple other agents interested, but Hannah was by far the youngest. She was my age. I think we were both 23, 24 back then. And I thought that I wanted to go with someone who would, you know, slay dragons for me, someone who would who who believed in the story but also wanted me to be her first client because I recognized how important that was of a thing for her. And then I went with Hannah and then shit, two months later, we had several companies who were interested in the book and then Random House, you know, uh, gave us the best proposal, not buying just the first book, but buying all three. So that's kind of how that happened. How'd you get people to hear about it? I mean, to be honest, a lot of it is luck. You know, you have to find the right team, but Random House had the right marketing strategy. They sent uh, me to Comic-Cons and they put me on panel where I was next to John Scalzi and Patrick Rothfuss and uh, uh, Scott Lynch. And then I began meeting their fans and we started giving away copies of Red Rising for free in order to get people to hooked into the series. And then word of mouth started spreading that people liked the, the work. And slowly my lines grew from like two people, the, you know, this year where they have to cut them off. And that's all because uh, Random House, you know, invested in me and invested time in this grassroots effort because they realized the best way to sell books isn't to force them down people's throat with you know marketing. It's to find the grassroots people who are going to recommend books to other people. 
And dude, I just like early on, even I had just incredible loyal, loyal following um, that loved the books and then just became like little apostles. And I credit a lot of it to them just becoming so ravenously hungry for the next book that they just pimped it out to everyone they know or knew. And so I think most of the credit goes to Random House for connecting me to the fans and then the fans for, you know, cycling it through their friend group. And that's such a good reminder. I love marketing and it's just like you, you kind of think it's going to be this big like, oh, spend a bunch of money and TV. You're like, no, dude, just go to the people who, you know, love this stuff and then one by one kind of convert them. Yeah. And in adult science fiction fantasy, it, it, it's more difficult to get the advertising money. But the young adult houses, they usually have like a bigger marketing push and you'll see their books advertised in places you won't traditionally see books advertised. And that's just because of the, they, they rely more on those first week numbers and the building of the buzz and all that stuff. Whereas, you know, say Name of the Wind, for instance, that started kicking ass because people started loving it, you know, and slowly it started building till it was this train. And in the second book in Ross's series, Wise Man's Fear debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Then they started pouring that advertising money into it. But I think that there's such a purity to fantasy and science fiction fans that the book has to be good or at least liked by them before the, because they're just skeptical about marketing. How much did the editor make? My editor is one of my best friends. Uh, Mike Braff, a terrifically interesting and talented guy. He's actually my age too. And so I think he was like 24 when he got the book. The first book is is incredible because he didn't want to change very much at all, like 160 words or something. And then the second book, he just eviscerated. So I was simultaneously lulled in submission <laughs> by him complimenting my first book and then eviscerating my second book. So the second book, we did major overhauls on and the third book too. Uh, and then this fourth book, uh, it's a lot cleaner because I know how we work together, you know. And so I'd say that the biggest hand in shaping Red Rising besides my own is Mike Braff. But we have an unusual relationship, you know. When he comes to L.A., he stays in my house. You know, we go to bars together. We hang out. We call each other just to nerd out. And so it creates that delight because we know a secret that no one else knows as we're piecing something together. So it's like building a tree fort and then showing all the other friends you have the tree fort. So we're like, yeah, look how cool this telephone system is we created. Look, we even have a bunker. Look, we have honeycomb here. And so it's fun to just get to share. And him and I get to laugh about which punches land and which ones don't. How do you trust what you really want to have as being true to the story versus like, all right, Mike had this opinion, so I should go with Mike? That's the tough thing. That sounded like just a cage match of ideas, whichever one survives. And it requires humility on both our parts. And this is, you know, goes back to the imposter syndrome thing. You know, Mike can simultaneously remind me to be humble and simultaneously make me very confident in myself. And it's important to have those friends, just as Aaron could. That's such a good point, man. What are you looking most forward to? Well, the comic books can be pretty damn cool. Uh, it comes out in May, I think May 7th. Um, and so that's with Dynamite. And I'm extremely excited about that because that shows that's set uh, about 20 years before uh, the Red Rising series. And it features the Sons of Ares and Fitchner Al Barca as he basically progresses towards the Darrow timeline. And so we have some like fantastic artists on it, and it's just gorgeous. And Dynamite's been just knocking out of the park. So we've got six of those issues, one coming each month starting in May. Um, but, you know, the overall, my still overall love is, is the book, Iron Gold. I just can't wait to share that with people because I'm working on the second draft right now and plowing towards the finish line. And that comes out in January 17th. What's the weirdest thing a fan has done so far as you've started to get more fans? Weirdest thing a fan has done? Well, I have been licked by another panelist on a panel at a Comic-Con. <laughs> Why did they lick you? I don't know if they're a fan of my books or the way I taste. 
I will leave that up to uh, them to answer. <laughs> the, uh, okay. Basically, they were commenting on my appearance and then thought it would get a laugh from the audience if they licked me because they said I looked tasty. Um, it was an interesting moment. Fantasy fiction writers. And then lastly, how do you decide what to do, man? Like, I'm, I'm, you just kind of like perplexed me a bit where like, I didn't even realize you had a comic book coming out. I thought actually what you're going to say is you're excited about a movie that I, I know that you, you've mentioned that there's a movie in the works. Yeah, so a movie, a movie's like, you know, a gigantic iceberg that you're pushing along with your little uh fish fins, you know? So it just and and then all of a sudden it'll go off a cliff and like and speed up and then everything goes like is done within eight months. So it's like it's slow, 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 then it goes. Um so right now the movie is, you know, still in the slow phase of development. But I'm so excited about like the, the comic books are fun because I get to explore the world before um Darrow's arrival and then the books afterwards, Iron Gold, are fun because I get to Deepen the mythology of Red Rising and expand it, and the books can be more complicated because they're from four, you know, four POVs. So basically, I just get to exercise different parts of my brain instead of getting stuck in a rut. I mean, there's a reason I'm not just doing the new books from Darrow's perspective. I'm doing three different perspectives in it as well because I want to continue to challenge myself as a writer because I don't want to, you know, go do the same old thing. And I think that if I have to, to be honest with my to my to my readers. It would just be bullshit if I just gave them the same product in the new wrapping. And so it's incumbent upon me to give them a product that is familiar and true to the original material, but also different in giving them a new experience. And so that's why it's fun to explore it across all the different mediums. Does it get easier or harder as it's gotten now more successful, more attention to all this? It gets harder. I think it gets way harder because you're dealing then with expectation. And the only person you should ever be trying to please when you're writing a book is yourself. But sometimes everything else creeps in. And that's faulty programming. That's when everything slows down and you start second-guessing yourself. Best thing you can do is, you know, write in that vacuum. Write, you know, for yourself or the people you you care about. And then everything else will fall into place. Dude, Pierce Brown, you're the man. Oh, dude, thanks for having me on. Well, that's a wrap. Go check out all of Pierce Brown's books. Love the guy. Looking forward to his comic book, movie, and all the things he's going to create in the future. If you're having an amazing day, text someone you love them. If you're having a crappy day, do the same thing. It'll make you feel better. If you have not left a review of the show, you're probably not going to do it by now, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm not. I'd like it if you did, but I'm not sweating it. And I hope you have a super special day. What's the most coffee you've ever drinking in one day? <laughs>